thank you very much. Good morning. Oh, that's a good, good morning. Yes, if you have a Bible with you, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We put the words up here. But it's it's good to uh, follow along if you have a Bible with you. Um, I'm sure you will know, if you're, even if you're very new to Christianity, that this time of year is a time of year that Christians call Advent. And it's become sort of famous through the calendar thing. Um, and one of the, that's got some benefits, because it means people know what Advent is, sort of. But it's got some downsides as well, because the meaning of Advent gets subtly changed because you can sell chocolate using it. Or at least that's what we found as, in the church as a whole. Um, because the Latin word Advent means he's coming. It talks about the arrival of Jesus. And historically, it's always referred to the second coming of Jesus. That's what Advent is. It's the church preparing for the day when Jesus returns as conquering glorious king to judge the earth and make it right and banish evil and overthrow the systems of injustice and empires that are set up against God. That's what Advent is a period of preparation. So in the traditional church calendar, this time of year, the church are looking forward to the return of Jesus as conquering judge and king, rather than looking forward to, if you like, the cozy side of Christmas, which generally is what Christmas means to a lot of people in our sort of culture. So you end up with a disparity between Advent and Christmas. And in our culture at the moment, Advent the period of longing and waiting and reflecting and praying and hoping for the return of Jesus to make all the world right, Advent gets drowned out by Christmas. In, our, in Britain at the moment, that's what happens. Because Christmas, as soon as you turn into December, and the tree comes, and we do, we do it too, we put the Christmas tree up at home, the twinkly fairy lights, it's just so nice and cozy. <gasps> Don't the houses look lovely? And it's just very sort of, it can be a bit twee and a bit sort of comfy. And the point is that the period of Advent is a period of longing and hope for the brokenness of the world to be healed. So that you and I pick up a newspaper and we read things as I did about what happened in Greenwich last night. Some of us would have seen it on the news. And you think, that kind of thing is the thing that I'm supposed to be using Advent to pray for Jesus to come back and make it all go away and heal the world. But instead, what happens is Advent becomes a period of preparation for Christmas. And in a very traditional church, they do that in quite interesting ways. Like some of you have come from or been to churches where they are traditional in their observance of Advent. And so what happens is they don't sing any carols or put up any decorations until Christmas Eve. And some of you go, what? what kind of madness is this? Because you think this is bizarre. But actually in some traditional church, in fact, that's, if you watch, um, do you ever watch the carols from King's College Cambridge on Christmas Eve? Or you know it's on. That's on Christmas Eve because that's when the traditional church sings carols. Because the rest of December is taken up with Advent, the longing for the return of Jesus. Not the baby in the manger, but the conquering king. And then Christmas starts on Christmas Day, and the 12 days of Christmas begin on Christmas Day, and they go onwards. Whereas for you and I, we think, that's weird, we've just done the 24 days of Christmas. You see, so it's quite interesting that in the history of the church, this period of the year we're in now is a period of longing and hope. And then when God comes in person in the form of a baby, we're supposed to go, oh, that is not what I thought God was going to do. I was expecting a conquering warrior who would hoover up all evildoers, throw them all away, and make the world right, and bring justice for the oppressed. And he's come in the form of a baby. I did not see that coming. And so, in my house, our advent calendars look like this. 
Um, this is my son's advent calendar. I've stolen it from him um, uh, today. And in fact, when I was at the previous meeting in Downham, one of the worship team was trying to take chocolate out of it, which I just felt is you are literally taking candy from a baby. Like, this is a <laughs> terrible way to behave. But this is what it looks like. And although there is religious imagery on it, you know, it's a sort of nativity-ish sort of scene with lots of you know, men with turbans and beards bowing down to a baby Jesus in the manger... This would give you no indication whatsoever that this period of the year was a period of anticipating the return of Jesus, would it? It would make you think, as soon as we get to December the 1st, we are in the nice, cozy, fairy lights bit of the year where we're waiting for the baby in the manger. And that matters. I'm not saying we're going to change it, by the way. I'm just saying we need to be aware of what that misses out because what it does is it robs us of the surprise and the drama And the wonder of what happens when we see what God has done to put the world right. Because we are, you see, in a traditional church, or if you celebrate Advent in the traditional way, you build up and build up and build up to the great reveal of the conquering warrior, and then you find a baby in a manger, and you're really surprised. Whereas in our kind of context, as soon as you open the first day of the Advent calendar, you know exactly what's going to happen. And actually, some of the the majesty, the drama, the shock, the wonder is kind of lost. Because in my house, the advent calendar opens day one. You know exactly what, oh, day is going to be a star. Oh, yeah, some men on camels. Isn't that nice? And then you open the advent calendar, and it's December the 2nd, and it's an angel. And it's just lovely stars and backlit and all really nice and floral. And then you open the advent calendar, December the 3rd, and it's a candle. And you just, at this point, you know what's going to happen. And you go through the whole month already in your head, knowing perfectly well that by the time you get to December the 24th, you're going to open the double doors, and there's a rabid tiger! And then you get a fright of your life. You think, whoa, wasn't expecting that. Now, that's, that's the effect that the baby in the manger is supposed to have when you understand what Advent is. Because you build yourself up expecting, come on, God's going to come. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. He's going to make the world right. He's going to heal it. He's going to destroy injustice. And then you see child in manger. You see teenage mum, probably very sore, probably pretty traumatized by what's just happened to her. And that's how the birth of Jesus would have struck the people who witnessed it and those who observe Advent through December. Because you have been praying for the king to subdue his enemies and then you find the weakest, most vulnerable sort of human there is presented to you as God's answer to the problem. It would elicit surprise. It would bring confusion and wonder. Let's read Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. And most of us have heard that story before. And a number of us have heard that story literally dozens of times. That'll be one of the passages that you hear read the most because it comes up at this time of year every year. So let me ask you this. If you were one of those shepherds and this had just been your experience, what would be the main thing that you would be telling everybody? What would be the key detail of that story that everybody you met and told this story to would clearly get? Right? You'd tell your family about it, you'd put it on WhatsApp, you'd put it on Facebook, you would go to the water cooler and tell people about it at the office. What's the main thing for you that you would tell people? Another way of asking that question, actually, is if you were hearing that story from a colleague or family member, what is the bit of the story you would find the hardest to believe? Right? So what's the bit that you would find the most amazing, the most wonder-inducing in that story? Okay? I'm genuinely going to ask you that. So if you, ha- if you don't mind doing this, you don't have to, turn to the person next to you and say, the detail in that story I would find the most wondrous, the most extraordinary to me, either as a, someone experiencing or hearing about it, would be, blah. what would that be? Okay? Just turn to the person next to you. Okay, how many people said something like the angelic choir or the angels? How many people said that? They're the angels, right? That's where we're gonna. Most of us would go. Okay, any any people there for baby in the manger? Okay, some of okay, and some of us going. We got both. We'd have thought it was all wonderful. Okay, great. Well, we'll see in a moment. My guess is that most Christians asked that would say the angelic choir. That'd be the first answer. Um, Probably by some way, actually. I think if we're Christians, that's the bit of the story we might highlight the most as amazing. It's incredible, you know. And that if we're not, if we're more skeptical of Christianity, that's the bit where we would immediately check out and go, I just don't believe it. Sorry, that's the bit I would find the hardest to swallow. Some of us, if we're from cultures where belief in spirits and the miraculous is more common than it is in contemporary Britain, we might not have said that. We might say, actually, the angels are not going to be the most surprising thing for me, because in our culture, most people believe in spirits, they're very aware of that. So we might have emphasized the baby and the manger, and that's the thing that I made sure was at the center of the story as the wonder bit. But it's interesting that what the shepherds told everybody, and what made everybody wonder when they heard it, was neither of those things. It was neither the angelic choir nor the fact there was the baby in the manger. I don't know if you noticed that as we read it. Some of you, this is the advantage of having a Bible open as you're now rummaging through going, what did they wonder at? But that, it isn't actually either of those two things. According to verses 17 and 18, they didn't wonder either at the angelic choir or at the baby in the manger. You see, Jewish people in those days all believed in angels. They were a very big part, and today still, very big part of Judaism and Christianity so although it's very scary to have an angelic choir come in the sky and fr- you know, frighten you with news, it's not actually that shocking or surprising. You know, things can be frightening without actually being completely unbelievable. A thunderstorm would be like that for us, right? 
You and I believe in thunderstorms. So it would be very scary to have a bolt of lightning hit a tree very near you. And you would probably tell people about it, but that wouldn't be unbelievable, really. It would be like, yeah, okay, sometimes thunderstorms hit trees and it had to land somewhere and it happened to be near you. Kind of mildly diverting anecdote, but not really particularly dramatic. That's not the highlight of the story. And you wouldn't run around going, lightning has struck! And people go, seriously, we must write a Bible about this event. You know, it's not like that. And similarly, there would be people who would focus on the baby in the manger. This baby has been born in a really bizarre place. And again, in most cultures, that happens sometimes. My brother was born in the back of a Ford Ca- uh, Vauxhall Cavalier. Right? That genuinely, my four kids, I'm the oldest, so of course I get looked after properly. <gasps> Must go to the hospital four days before. By the time the fourth one's come along, and you can, I'm sure, ask Andy and Sarah Floyd about this, it just, ah, well, you know, just kind of, yeah, saying we've been there before. And, and anyway, my dad just doesn't believe my mum. And my mum says, I think the baby's coming. My dad says, no. And men do that sometimes, just go, we don't know anything, you know everything, and I'm still going to try and tell you you're wrong. And in the end, my brother is born in the back of a cavalier. And again, that's an interesting story for him. It's a nice little illustration for me, but it doesn't change the world, and it doesn't make everybody suddenly find themselves in wonder at what has happened, because sometimes babies are born in strange places. That's not, neither of those things are what the shepherds emphasized. What they did emphasize, the thing they said that caused everybody who heard it to wonder was this, verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, that's the saying, wondered at what the shepherds had told them. That's what they told everybody. They went around, they didn't say, an angelic choir. And they didn't go around saying, a baby's been born. They went around saying, we heard a saying about the baby that's been born that will blow your mind. And what's the saying? Verse 11, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's what they went everywhere telling people. God has come to save us. They've literally heard, forget the angels, that's just detail, forget where he was born, that doesn't really matter either, except that it just proves the angels were right. The really amazing thing that made everybody wonder was, God has come to save us. And that's what they couldn't stop talking about, and that's what everybody who heard it marveled, because it sounded so shocking, so extraordinary, that God would be the kind of God who would come to save. In other words, the highlight of the story, and the bit that makes people wonder, the bit that makes... Believers go, wow, and unbelievers go, what? That's often what wonder is, isn't it? You know, if you believe the wonderful thing, you go, whoa. And if you don't believe it, you go, oh, yeah, seriously? That thing, the thing that creates the wonder, is not the angels in the sky or the baby in the manger, but the announcement of who the baby is. God comes to save. A savior who is Christ the Lord. That's where the wonder is. And that's what makes believers go, wow, God has come to save. And that's what makes skeptics say, what? God has come to save? That's not the kind of thing God does. I actually find that very helpful at a personal level. In my interactions with friends of mine who don't believe Christianity, which of course a lot of them don't. So my friends outside of the church, my friendship group, I'm hanging out with a group of them in a week's time. Friends from university were still in touch 20 years on. Almost all of them are very classically secular people. They're just like ordinary you know, they're often very bright, very well-educated, socially and politically progressive, often financially successful men and women who just don't believe in angels. And it would be extraordinary if one of them were to suddenly say they did. That's just not the world 
that I live in, in the sense of outside of the church. That's not what people do. And my friendship circle would be like that. Yours may be as well. Some of us wouldn't. But as I'm talking to them and thinking through the bizarreness of this story, it can feel like a very embarrassing part of my faith, of the Christian story, is God appeared and there were angels and there was a guy, we haven't even mentioned the guiding star, goodness me, and a virgin birth, oh no, another one. There's like all of these very embarrassing, glaring miracles that contemporary secular materialist people don't really believe for a moment. And it almost feels like they could be obstacles to getting to the real deal. So I could, you know, I, 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 this quote, I, just, I quite like it because it expresses this view so well. Sixty-odd years ago, there was a German New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf Bultmann who made a statement that to me sums up very well what New Testament scholars have tried to do to rescue Christianity from the Bible, which sometimes they do. And it's less common now, but it was very common then. And he said this, he said, It is impossible to use electric lights and the radio and make use of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. And what he effectively he did, and many other New Testament theologians did, was they then went, what we've got to do is go to the Bible and try and strip away all of the miraculous clutter that stops people from believing it. Because no one can turn on a radio and believe in an angel at the same time. That just doesn't work. You can't believe in dishwashers and demons. You've got to make a choice, right? You go one way or the other. But technology just makes this kind of world sound fanciful and silly. So let's get rid of the miracles and leave us with just the bare truths of Christianity. It was called demythologization. It's a very fancy word. I'm sure it's even fancier in German. We're going to take all the myths out and leave us with the bare bones of what's left. Now, of course, some of us already go, why on earth would you want to do that? And what's happened in the last... 60 years, there's a lot of people like that have said, no, in the end, I'm afraid the miraculous claims of Christianity are so central to it that if you take them out, you've got nothing left. And I think that's absolutely right. But I could feel, with the Christmas story, a temptation to do this. Say, angel choirs, ooh, little, let's dial that down. A little bit quieter with the angel choirs in the background. Yeah, do we need to make the virgin birth so prominent, guiding stars, or couldn't we turn that into some sort of other thing? Like, maybe it's just a sort of, they're reading the zodiac or something. Let's turn down all the miracles, and then we'd have, you know, we could just focus on the real thing of Christmas instead of getting all of this awkward, embarrassing, not very secular, materialist clutter in the way. And so I could feel a bit awkward around Christmas when I meet my friends next week. And somebody says about Christmas, do you seriously believe, honestly, like seriously, Andrew, like, but do you really believe that? And I could feel a bit awkward and I could be tempted to do the Radio 4 cough and waffle technique. You know, where the person asks the question and he doesn't really want to answer and say, well, John, to be honest, and it's not really like that. And then answer a completely different question. And I could be tempted to do that when faced with that sort of challenge. Virgin births, guiding stars, angel choirs. But this story makes me handle that challenge in the exact opposite way. And that's what I love about it. Because what this story does is it makes me answer the question as a mirror image of, what, of the coffin waffle. This story makes me answer the question, do you seriously believe that? By instead saying, oh, it's far worse than you think. It's far worse than you think. Believing in angels and stars and virgin births is trivial. I can do all of that before breakfast without even thinking about it. That doesn't worry me in the slightest. What I believe is far more outlandish than any of those things. I believe that the God of eternity took on flesh and became a human being. And that means I think that the God who created Jupiter went down the birth canal. That's what I believe. 
I don't, angels, loads of people believe in angels and spirits. That doesn't worry me. Virgin birth, yeah, stranger things happen. Yeah, guiding stars, stranger things happen. I don't believe trivial, I, I do believe it, but I don't, that's not where the, the bizarreness of what I believe stops. I believe that the living God who made the stars became a human being who suckled milk from his mother and soiled his nappies. That's what I believe. So if I'm going to take away these other bits, you're going to be left with something far more shocking, not less shocking, than the truth of Christianity. I believe that the angels and the stars and the virgin birth together point to a much more wonderful, as in full of wonder, reality than those things themselves. I believe they mean that the world now has a saviour, Christ the Lord, and I believe it's good news of great joy for all people that God is the sort of God who not only creates but comes to save. And that's what most people don't believe. There's a lot of people in this country believe in God. You're a significant majority, according to every time you do a survey, 70% or up, depending on how the question is worded, believe in a God. That's not difficult. My claim is not that, hey, believe in God. It's like loads of people believe in God. I believe in a God who came to save. That's the startling thing, the God who would become human, and that's where everybody else checks out. I um, read a lot of kids' stories to my kids because of the age of my children and one of my favourites is the story Peace at Last if you know it Mr Bear and Mrs Bear go to bed and Mr Bear can't sleep because Mrs Bear is snoring and so Mr Bear gets up and goes and sleeps in Baby Bear's room but Baby Bear's pretending to use an aeroplane and so he has to go downstairs into the sitting room and there's a cuckoo clock going and you do it all the time with my kids and then they like oh no said Mr Bear I can't stand this and then he goes and sleeps in the kitchen and in the kitchen there's a dripping tap and then the refrigerator is going, hmm. And I'm reading that story, and I'm, I'm just, this thought is percolating. Is that realistic? Like, would a fridge really keep him awake? I'm, I'm, I get why the cuckoo clock would wake you up. No, don't get me wrong, every 15 minutes, something like that, that would wake me up. And snoring can keep you awake, although I, that's not been my experience in marriage, but I've spoken to people for whom it has. And I can imagine that a child playing with a plane, that could keep you awake. And even the stuff in the garden, I get that. But would a fridge really keep you awake? Humming, it would be quite soothing, wouldn't it? And then, of course, the thought hits you, you think, hang on a second, is that realistic? This is a world in which a bear can make tea. This is a world in which a bear is having conversations, has a car. What's a bear doing with a car? Why would a bear have a fridge? What's the bear? You know, and you start, and you realize, oh, no, 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 I've completely missed what about this story is unbelievable. It's drawn me in, and I've realized, focusing in on this incredibly unimportant detail, when actually the entire story is far more difficult to believe than the fact that a fridge might keep you awake. Some of us, the laughing you can hear is the parents of young kids who have only just noticed that in their life. But of course, that's what, in fact, these details are in the Christmas story. You're, you're fixating on angels. That's not the point. Of, that's not difficult at all. We're saying God became a human. We believe in the incarnation, and that's so much more bizarre and hard to believe than anything else. That's where the wonder comes from, that the person who they came to speak about or to visit or to declare from the sky or heard about is Christ the Lord, a savior. That's what they told everybody. All who heard it, that saying, wondered. Because they believed in angels too, and they believed babies were born in strange places. What they could not believe was that God had come in flesh to rescue the world. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So I would invite you to wonder this Christmas. To wonder in that sense. To wonder in the really to wonder, to ask that question, really? To perhaps go, what? Or perhaps go, wow. 
but to wonder at what the shepherds said, at the saying they had heard, that there is a God, not only a God who creates, but a God who comes to save, and he is Christ the Lord. I want to invite you to wonder, and I actually want you to invite you to wonder whatever kind of religious background you have. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here anyway, and plenty of us are, then I invite you to wonder simply on this, is the story true? That's that's the thing I would invite you to wonder on this Christmas. You probably already are in some way. right? Because the odds are that if you're here as opposed to in bed or doing Christmas shopping today, you are probably at least open to the possibility that there is a God. If you were certain there wasn't a God, you probably wouldn't be here. So you may, at least that's a possibility for you. And so I would invite you to wonder this Advent and then this Christmas. What if the God who made the world was so committed to it that he was prepared to become part of it to rescue it? Because that's the Christian claim. Believing in a God, everyone, not everyone, loads of people do that. That's not that difficult. Most of the brightest minds in history have believed in a God. That's not problematic on its own the problematic bit is that having believed in a god you then believe that that god takes on flesh to save the world that's where people check out and i just invite you to wonder is that true could it be true what if the god who made the world was not content to leave it in the mess it's in with violence and evil and death although also a lot of beauty but wanted to rescue it And was committed enough to rescuing it that he didn't only give us new instructions or a new way of thinking or a new moral code, but actually became human himself. A saviour who is Christ the Lord. I want you to wonder on that this Christmas. Second group of people, you are associated with Jesus. You have some Christianity in your background, in your origin story, but you are are not really following him at the moment for whatever reason. You know, you're here kind of half in, half out. A good way of asking really is uh, if somebody looked at your life, they might well connect you with church in some way, but they might well not say, I think Jesus is king of that person's life. And if you're in that position, I want to invite you to wonder as well. I invite you to wonder, this is a very specific question, but if an angelic choir was to suddenly descend, okay, crazy thought experiments, not going to, but if an angelic choir was to suddenly descend and announce that Advent was over and that Jesus was returning now, second coming is here, the thing that we've all been waiting for is here, would that give you the response that the shepherds had when they went, this is filled with great fear, or would it give you the response the angels wanted them to have, which is, this is great joy for all people? Would it terrify you? Or would you think, it's finally here, this day I've been waiting for? Wonder about that. Wonder which, you know, because half in, half out, in the end, becomes unsustainable. Because at some point, you find the return of Jesus is something that fills you with fear or fills you with joy. And if the answer is fear, then you might also want to wonder, what is, why is that? What is keeping me from a, a commitment, a rejoicing in the return of Jesus? What's keeping me? Is it that I've pinned my hopes for joy on something else? And if so, is it delivering? And do I think it still will be in five years' time? And then if you're a Christian, I invite you to wonder as well. Because most of us are in this room. Most of us follow Jesus. We love Jesus. And I invite you to wonder about this. What kind of God would do this? In some ways, this is the thing that Christians are continually coming to terms of to wonder again and again. If I really believe that God is like this... What does that tell me about the love of that God for his people? Is there anything he wouldn't give me? 
He, as we heard, heard a few minutes ago, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered it up for, him up for us, how will he not also give us everything else in grace? Just, can, just wonder about that. As we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we take the bread and the wine or the juice, I think, how, what kind of God would do this that would put himself out there to such an extent that I could be forgiven in his name and take bread and wine as if to remember his death for me And if he loves me enough to do that, does he not also love me enough to give me anything else I might need? And what kind of joy might that bring to my heart as I wonder about him this Christmas? You might also want to wonder, by the way, about whether you can invite people to come and experience the wonder for themselves. The Christmas carol service. Just say, this is wonderful. Not just in a very nice sense of the word wonderful, but this this makes me wonder. This makes me say, how can this be? And so while you're wondering about those things, and just before we close and ask, you know, we're going to break bread and have the band out as well. But just before we do, I want to read you a poem that invites us to wonder on the very specific question, is this true? It's a poem that's written about 70 years ago by John Betjeman, who may be a name some of you know. It's set in London, which I love as well. Um, and it's simply called Christmas, and it might help you to wonder this year. The bells of waiting advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again. And lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain in many a stained glass window sheen from Crimson Lake to Hooker's Green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house, the yew, will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font and arch and pew so that the villagers can say, the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tramcars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze where paper decorations hang and bunting in the red town hall says, Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers and marbled clouds go scudding by the many-steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember dad, and oafish louts remember mum. And sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say, Come, even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true? This most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, Become a child on earth for me? And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and inexpensive scent and hideous tie so kindly meant, no love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonder of Christmas. We thank you for the wonder of Advent, anticipating the return of Jesus and then finding that the way God has come to save us is in the person of a baby, is in the person of himself, a God who cares enough to become flesh for me. Thank you that that is the claim we make that outstrips all the others in its wonder 
Lord, thank you that our focus in and, about, in and around all of the, the tweeness or the familiarity or the shock and drama of this story, the focus remains on this child and who he is, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we pray that you would welcome us in again to wonder at him, at all that he means, at all that he has done for us. That those of us who are wondering whether this is true would come closer. That those of us who already believe it to be true would find fresh wonder to fuel our joy in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen.